Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Welcome, everyone. This is the Spiral Foundation's live talk, Evening with the Expert. This talk is being recorded and will be available on the TalkShoe website for one week. Participants may download this talk for your own use following the presentation. After that time, the talk will be available for sale on the Spiral Foundation website at www.thespiralfoundation.org. Participants may obtain a certificate for AOTA CEUs by following the instructions in your confirmation email and taking a short test on tonight's talk. This talk is the copyrighted property of the Spiral Foundation and may not be copied or distributed without permission. Welcome. Tonight's topic in our Sensory Integration and Mental Health Concerns series is Implementing Sensory Modulation Strategies in Mental Health Settings. And hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Teresa May Benson, and I'm the Executive Director of the Spiral Foundation. And joining us tonight is Dr. Tina Champagne. Uh, Dr. Champagne is the Program Director for the Cutchins Programs for Children and Families in Northampton, Mass. She's also an international consultant through her own business, Champagne Conferences and Consultation. She earned her doctorate in occupational therapy from Boston University and her master's degree in education from Springfield College uh, in Massachusetts. She's worked at a large variety of mental health settings throughout her career, including inpatient psychiatric hospitals. And she was instrumental in developing uh, sensory-based restraint reduction and trauma-informed care programs for the state of Massachusetts and as part um, of the faculty of the National Association for State Mental Health Program Directors, Office of Technical Assistance um, for uh, related national mental health initiatives. Uh, so Tina's very passionate about uh, creating and implementing nurturing, healing, and trauma-informed therapeutic programs for children uh, through older adult populations. And she also enjoys engaging in research and has uh, authored numerous publications, including her book, Sensory Modulation and Environment, Essential Elements of Occupation. So we're very delighted to have Dr. Champagne with us this evening to discuss her sensory modulation program for mental health applications. So welcome, Tina, and thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So tonight, um, I'd like to start off by uh, just discussing your sensory modulation program, which uh, many of our listeners uh, may be aware of, and um, how you have implemented that program in a variety of mental health uh, settings. I think it was really a very uh, cutting-edge program and uh, continues to be one of the real go-to um, programs for mental health practitioners. Uh, so I'd like to start off, um, first of all, with just a brief discussion about um, the use of sensory approaches and uh, national initiatives in mental health. Um, you've been really involved in um, SAMHSA and in both the state and national um, uh, mental health programs um, to get uh, 
uh, more of these uh, sensory approaches um, integrated into mental health. So uh, I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about that. Um, particularly, I know you've been um, involved with the National Association for State Mental Health Program Directors um, around restraint reduction and trauma-informed care initiatives. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about how these sensory approaches first kind of became integrated to and promoted as part of these initiatives? Sure. Um, basically, really early in my career when I was just starting out as an OT, um, I had someone really close to me had a first psychotic break, and I actually visited that person in an acute inpatient unit similar to the one I was working on um, at the time. And it wasn't that people weren't doing, you know, the best that they could and providing really good services, but, you know, sort of like if you're, uh, you have a loved one who's admitted to a nursing home. If you're working in a nursing home, you start to um, recognize things and notice that there's other things that maybe you could um, bring uh, to the facility or into that line of work. And I had that kind of a experience. And as an OT, you have some initial education and training um, in sensory processing. Um, but really, this experience helped to fuel my passion for this work and helped me to just really want to learn as much as I could by all of the leaders that were already out there in the field. And I went to many, many different trainings and just tried to take from those trainings what I was learning and pull it, pull from that and adapt it for applications for the population that I was working with, which at the time um, was older adolescents, adults, and older adults, largely in acute inpatient mental health services, and then also in partial hospitalization programs. And again, that was um, a while back. Um, and so in terms of the national initiatives that you're referring to for mm -hmm. seclusion and restraint reduction and trauma-informed care, those national initiatives first rolled out in 2003 as part of the President's New Freedom Commission. And the goal of that initiative was initially to just try to help to develop more nurturing and healing culture of care and mental health um, service delivery overall in general. And um, it was the National Association for State Mental Health Program Directors, which I'll refer to as NASHBID for short for the rest of the talk. Um, it was um, that group that um, took on the responsibility for helping to educate and roll out this, these national initiatives in exclusion restraint reduction and trauma-informed care with all the state-level organizations. Um, at that time, again, around 2003, I was working for um, an acute inpatient mental health unit in Western Massachusetts, and again, still working with older adolescents, adults, and older adults. Um, and at the time, I didn't realize it, but a nurse, um, Nan Stromberg, who was um, someone who was part of her job for the Mass State Department of Mental Health, she was someone who goes around and does all the relicensing visits and makes sure everybody's following their rules and regulations. She um, was visiting a facility I had worked at previously, and she noticed a lot of what had been done there um, in terms of sensory-based interventions. And she also pointed out to the administrators that they had <clears throat> a significant reduction in seclusion and restraint use, um, which they all felt was directly correlated to rolling out those initiatives. 
And so fortunately, they gave her my contact information. And as I mentioned, um, you know, as a relicensing person, she was also coming to the facility I was going to be, that I was working on at the time. And this particular hospital um, was three standard deviations above the state mean for the use of seclusion and restraint when I first started there. And we rolled out a pilot program of the sensory modulation program. And after just one year, we ended up being three standard deviations below the state mean. So this was um, something that we captured the data through quality improvement study. And so when she came to our unit to do this relicensing visit, um, she brought it to our attention that this was one of the natural outcomes. My initial goal was just to provide more nurturing and healing options for the clients that we were working with. And so to hear that seclusion and restraint reduction was also a natural outcome um, was really, you know, amazing to see. Um, and so this particular nurse was also part of the faculty for NASHBID's um, Office of Technical Assistance, and they were gearing up to roll out this huge national initiative of both seclusion restraint reduction and trauma-informed care. And they were looking for more tools and strategies to help train people in to be able to have options and alternatives um, again, that are more nurturing and healing. And she really um, uh, was happy to see some of what we were doing and asked if I would join their their team of trainers and integrate um, some materials into their National um, Executive Training Institute. And so that's how this all started to, you know, evolve and take on kind of a life of its own. <laughs> and... <laughs> And with this nurse, I also published uh, one of my first publications in the Journal of Psychosocial Nursing, and it was in a special issue on seclusion and restraint reduction in trauma-informed care that highlighted some of the work that we were doing and the results of this quality improvement study. So it all just kind of came together, and over the years, um, you know, I've been able to, I've been blessed to be able to work with many different um different types of um, mental health programs and whether it's in my consultation role or in my everyday work and be able to think about ways to adapt and modify this program, which was initially developed for use with, again, older adolescents, adults, or older adults, and um, even in more of my current work with children. Okay, that's great. <clears throat> so um, I think what's interesting is you were just implementing some things in your regular everyday practice that then had fortuitous result of decreasing the restraints, which was something that was <clears throat> not really planned at first, it sounds like. No, I didn't I didn't set out to do that. I set out to really just look for alternatives and other sensory related tools that again, whether it was um modifications to the physical environment or enhancing the group programming and looking for ways to assess for different sensory related patterns or, you know, helping people to self-soothe and, you know, just really looking for a variety of ways to bring strategies and tools into our environment. And again, at first, this started out for me in more of an acute care level an acute level of care uh -huh. so it, we had to take into consideration a lot of different safety concerns and and things like that um but really it was more that was that was more the mission and the goal and seclusion and restraint reduction was one of the natural outcomes i was a little concerned when they wanted to 
sort of add it to this national initiative that people would think that that would be the only thing that you would use it for. But I figured over time, as time went on, you know, mm-hmm. it would it would be recognized as for being for that, but also for much more than that. Right. Well, I know one of the things um, is that you've really talked about um, using the term sensory modulation versus sensory integration um, in your trainings and in the use of your sensory processing approaches with uh, these interdisciplinary mental health professionals. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about your thinking around that decision to kind of go with, uh, at least initially, I know there's a little bit more now, um, but initially going with just that modulation piece? Sure. Um, Since I was starting to write publications and conduct trainings and trying to integrate um, this work into this national initiative, which I was the only OT, you know, as part of this whole team, um, I really needed to figure out what kind, what terms I was going to use to explain what I was doing. And I also felt like I needed to identify what was within the scope of OT practice versus what I felt comfortable in training staff from other disciplines in. At the time, Lucy Miller, you all at um, at Spiral, Jane, um, many colleagues um, had just rolled out this new taxonomy on sensory processing where, and again, this was all happening at around 2003, where it described that sensory processing included sensory modulation, which was described as the regulatory component of sensory processing, um, sensory discrimination, sensory-based motor skills. And so um, I also learned at trainings on sensory integration um, that the totality of sensory processing was viewed as within the scope of practice uh, more of rehab professionals, so OTs, PTs, speech-language pathologists. So I, after much thought, I felt really strongly that in mental health care, all professionals work really hard to help our clients to become more self-aware and to identify and learn coping skills to support self-regulation. As an OT, I know that developing regulatory capacities and learning coping skills ultimately helps people with trauma and mental health-based um, needs and goals to participate more fully in their meaningful life roles and occupations. So given all of this, I thought that sensory modulation being described as more of the regulatory component of sensory processing was something that with training interdisciplinary professionals would be able to become trained and while respecting that going beyond that was more within the scope of rehab professionals. So I know that it's it's sort of like splitting hairs because all of these different components are interrelated, but I felt strongly that focusing more on sensory modulation and mental health would be a way to help clients gain more access to sensory strategies um, when used for this purpose while going beyond modulation would remain more in the domain of rehab professionals. I also knew that Um, Across the country, there were a few mental health OTs. um, There were very few mental health OTs out there um, doing this work, and so I wanted to put together a framework to help teach interdisciplinary professionals that would be flexible enough to adapt to use across populations and settings with training or consultation minimally by an OT. And so this is all the beginning of this evolutionary process of the Sensory Mod program. The other thing was that in this national training um, which was largely conducted by psychiatrists and, and nursing professionals, um, they were talking a lot about de-escalation and calming strategies. And one of the ways I sold the concept of sensory modulation to them was 
to be able to demonstrate that when you're looking at modulation, you're talking about a whole continuum from calming-based interventions all the way through alerting, um, more alerting interventions, and that that was important to offer that wide range to the different client populations that we were working with, and also that there was this evolving taxonomy and neuroscience to support this, and that's part of what helped to also get them to buy in and, and use this this language as well. Right. So I think uh, one of the big takeaways for our listeners is is that the language that we use to talk about this uh, these issues really can facilitate the buy-in from the uh, medical professionals that might yeah, not really be definitely. familiar with with sensory integration strategies. Mm -hmm. uh, so by using terminology that's familiar to them or that can fit within their framework can really help um, further our <laughs> our agendas. Right. And they were also really, a lot of people were using the term sensory integration and using it incorrectly. And it wasn't too, too long after all this rolled out that the air sensory integration fidelity, um, right. you know, information started to come out too. So it all really gelled nicely together over time to help make all these different points and to help to sort of sort it all out. Great. So I think that takes us then to our next question, which is um, about how you see trauma and sensory modulation being related and um, how you use your approach um, with these individuals with trauma in particular. Because um, I, I know that uh, there's a lot of different um, populations and diagnoses and settings that um, you know we can work with, uh, but I think this trauma piece is is the piece that people are right now, anyways, very concerned about. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, I feel like I should explain a little bit. I keep talking about the trauma-informed care initiative, which continues yeah. um, today, but really what that is, it's basically trauma-informed care is a model of care, and it requires, it's basically, you know, this is kind of common knowledge in mental health practice to date, but it requires that as professionals working with people with mental health challenges in our trauma histories that we understand that there's this high prevalence of trauma in mental health consumer populations in general. We have to also understand the neurobiological, um, emotional, and social impact of trauma and also that we provide care that doesn't just recognize all of this but addresses it. And we know now with so much research that's been done in the area of trauma science, particularly over the last decade, that traumatic experiences impact the whole person, spirit, mind, body. And in the past, there wasn't a real thorough understanding of this. And many professionals focus most of their work with, individual, with individuals with trauma histories on what we might refer to as primarily cognitive-based approaches, so mm -hmm. um, approaches like cognitive behavior therapy, more psychodynamic or approaches or talk therapies. And this isn't to say that those types of therapies aren't really valuable and useful, but more um, recently there's been um, a great deal of research demonstrating the impact of trauma not only on the mind but also on the body and in particularly on the developing nervous system. So, for example, we know that the autonomic nervous system plays a really significant role in our ability to self-regulate. And given that sensory modulation, for example, is your regulatory component of sensory processing, it just made sense to me to try to provide individuals with trauma and mental health symptoms with a variety of choices of different sensory strategies that might help to support their ability to self-regulate through the senses. 
And the use of sensory interventions doesn't necessarily require verbal interaction, um, especially when that's something that might be difficult for the individual for any number of reasons. So um, I always stress that a primary goal of using sensory approaches with individuals with trauma histories is that as a first step, we want to help them to feel safe and more stabilized and more regulated. In fact, the first step of all trauma-based interventions actually is to help to foster a sense of stabilization. And so, you know, over time, people then often will engage in processing and grieving and, you know, more integrative, transformative processes. Um, these are all part of trauma processing um, while always being mindful to help the person to be stabilized over time. And sensory approaches can actually be used in all of these phases of prom uh, trauma work. But in acute care settings, stabilization is often, you know, the primary focus in general. And so it all just seemed to be a just right fit. The other thing is that um, research looking at different sensory modulation patterns, such as low registration or sensitivity, avoiding, seeking patterns, um, it's more recently become recognized. Uh, it's becoming recognized that people with trauma, such as PTSD, have different kinds of sensory processing patterns and that so they are they do tend to be sensitive to tactile and auditory stimulation for example or they may have difficulty with lower distraction in terms of their body awareness um, and so forth and so it's been great to see a lot more research coming out to help demonstrate that yes in fact this is part of what's going on for people with trauma histories the other pieces that um, over time we've also grown to realize that trauma affects the developing nervous system. So particularly with children with trauma histories, for example, you can see with, you know, different children, you can see um, be even beyond modulation difficulty with different aspects of sensory processing. So um, it's really been amazing to see all of this um, evolve, particularly over the last decade, decade and a half. And when we use this approach, what I've found is that people tend to feel less stigmatized because they have this growing understanding that there's neurological reasons for what they're experiencing. And therefore, it tends to give them more hope that they can actually change the way they feel. Um, and in fact, in mental health care, I feel like one of the most powerful messages of the sensory approaches is that what we're doing is we're helping people to realize that they have the power to change the way that they feel and that these approaches are for all of us. It's a very humanistic approach. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that's one of the things that can be really powerful about it. Um, in addition to those uh, individuals with uh, trauma, uh, what other kinds of populations or diagnosis, uh, problem settings, that kind of thing, um, have you personally used your program with or know that it's been applied to? Because I think sometimes people feel like, you know, if, if we talk about acute care and they're in, say, long-term care or they're mm -hmm. in um, uh, you know, community mental health, they're like, oh, you know, I can't use that. And right. I don't, that's not true. <laughs> right. Now, Very. I, I think that uh, it, it's good to just give people a sense of um, how this has been applied kind of in the broad strokes. Sure. Um, well, again, when I first started, that was I was working largely in acute care. Over the course of my career, I've had um, the luxury of working across many, many different settings. So I've had the ability to use 
this approach across most mental health care settings, including um, outpatient, school-based settings, residential and day programs, forensic settings, skilled nursing facilities with people ages 3 all the way up through 100 plus. In fact, they even be able to use this approach with older persons in the end stage of life and as part of palliative care programs and emergency room applications. It's just been um, a real, it's just been, you know, quite the journey. Um, people with schizophrenia, for example, people with um, mood disorders, um, all different types of clinical applications. Great. So um, let's talk about your program now. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the goals of the sensory modulation program and uh, what some of the specific parts of it are? Um, sure. The different components, um, again, I tried to develop a model that was pretty broad-based and um, could therefore be modified and used in a, with a, this large variety of populations and in different settings. And so one of the things that I've really strongly emphasized is the number one most important thing, um, one of the components is your therapeutic use of self and to think about that from a sensory lens. And to me, that is so important because a lot of people think sensory and they think all the stuff and all the equipment. And I have found that in programs that think they're instituting the sensory modulation program, but they forget about that one piece or they don't really train about that, that they don't do as well and they don't have the kind of results when we really emphasize how important that is. So, And that's assessment through intervention, individual and group sessions that therapeutic use of self is extremely important. Other really important components are helping to create um, a sensory diet. So really strategically integrating this work into the daily routine and making sure that strategies that are identified are done in a collaborative way, that they're functional, things that are doable and able to institute throughout the daily routine, um, that you know, other components are sensory-based activities, it's, you know, pretty much anything you can think of that might be fostering the ability to self-regulate. Um, different sorts of sensory modalities, and a modality is a type of equipment or approach that's, um, you know, specifically used for a, a therapeutic purpose, such as a weighted blanket or a weighted vest or even something like clinical aromatherapy is a sensory-based modality. Modifications to the physical environment, whether it's home, school, work, um, whether it's a sensory room, a corner of a room, or even just overall sensory enhancement to the general environment, and also caregiver ed education. So those are some of the basic components of the sensory modulation program. And the general goals are, number one, to try to help increase self-awareness, and that can be done using assessment tools, self-rating tools, even just discussion or exploration of different sorts of sensory supportive strategies. Um, goal number two is to help to explore strategies um, to help really target someone's individual goals. Um, and after exploring and getting a sense of what's useful and helpful and things that maybe aren't 
helpful, useful, and helpful. Goal number three is to start to really use these strategies in a really strategic way to support regulation. So that's where developing an actual sensory diet might come in and targeting, you know, identifying what are the goals I'm trying to reach here. And then over time, goal number four, again, it's just very broad-based is repertoire expansion, so continuously building on this. And this isn't a linear process. Um, it doesn't have to necessarily go in this order. Everyone's different. Um, so I tried to just make these goals again, broad-based to allow for more of an individualized approach. Okay, great. That's awesome. Um, so let's then get into some of the specific kinds of activities that you tend to recommend. I know this is the piece everybody always loves the most, um, especially if there are th uh, things that um, you have found that are maybe a little unique or out of the box. Um, and I think one other thing I'd like you just to, to elaborate just a bit more on that you just alluded to earlier, which uh, I know we've had some discussions about this, is the um, safety considerations right. uh, that you have to take into place uh, in certain settings. Um, I know we've had discussions around weighted blankets, for instance, and mm -hmm. Some of the safety issues you brought up, I'm like, who would ever even think about that? Right, <laughs> so I think right. Some of those kinds of things are things that would be great to share with people. Sure. Um, generally, um, it's really important to work with the person to get a sense of what is it that they want to accomplish. And one of the things that is always concerning to me is when I um, visit um, sites where they're integrating this work and they're having, they're running these random sort of groups or they found some group protocols and they're kind of, you know, just using these group protocols and they haven't necessarily done any form of assessment or even if they have, if they're not really linking it back to the person's actual goals. What is it? Why have they come to you? So whether someone's extremely anxious or maybe having problems with dissociation or, you know, having urges to self-harm or what have you, really helping the person think about what these different approaches, how they're going to help them to be more active participants in their life and their roles, routines, and occupations. So to me, that's always step one is in some way, shape, or form collaborating to, to help to figure that out. Um, some of my go-tos, and again, pulling from the work of Dr. Jean Ayers is, you know, she always referred to the powerhouses as those interventions that incorporate prop proprioception, vestibular, and tactile. And so, you know, really looking at what are the range of options that I have, no matter where I'm working, um, that a person can really trial and use some of these different strategies. Um, so when you talk about weighted blankets, for example, or other weighted modalities, one of the things I was doing when I was starting to pull this and you know pull, pull this all together was there was a lot of different strategies that seemed helpful, but I was looking for what I refer to as power tools, and these were just things that seemed to just be more more intense or more impactful um, in practice. And I was noticing that clients were asking. Some clients would come up to me and ask me to put them in restraint, for example, and that was obviously something that we didn't want to do. So the use of the weighted blankets was really interesting in that um, I would ask people, would you try this first? Would you be willing to just give this a try? And um, at the time, again, these are being used with adults or older adolescents, and so we could use ones that were heavier. 
Um, but it was mind-boggling to me how many people found that the use of a weighted blanket would help them to no longer feel like they, you know, they would no longer feel like they needed to use things like seclusion or restraint. And even beyond that, they would say that they were comforting and it felt like a big hug or it would help them to decrease their anxiety, to help to fall asleep, to stay asleep. Um, And so, you know, um, that is an example of when you see that kind of an influence or an impact, it helps you to want to look more into that. So did quite a bit of research on the use of weighted modalities. And that's another example of, that is an example of a type of modality that then, of course, there's um, people that want to make sure that these are used safely and, you know, oh, if the weights are taken out, could they be used as a weapon? And what about guidelines for use, et cetera? And so over time, um, again, because they seem to be so helpful for so many people, actually conducted research and the focus on my doctoral project was actually um, creating a competency-based training program around um, how to train people in the more skilled and responsible use of weighted blankets and developing policies and procedures. Clinical aromatherapy is another big one um, where, you know, again, it's a modality, um, but um, understanding that there's actual trainings and even certification level training you can obtain um, if that's something that you feel would be useful in your practice, which to me um, certainly was. And um, things like even beanbag tapping, where you're giving yourself um, a massage and helping a person to feel more grounded, but always, again, bringing it back to what is it they're using for, what is it, what is the reason, um, and finding those strategies that are going to be most useful to them. Mm-hmm. So there's just a couple of different examples. Right. Now, with your weighted blankets, what kind of weight are you, were you using? Because um, I know that's a question. You, you were working largely with adolescents and adults, uh, so that, that older population. What kind of weight um, are you often using? It's something people ask a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, well, this is one of my soapboxes because um, there's very few studies out there on the use of weighted blankets, and people often want to use the weighted vest guidelines when they're looking at guidelines for the use of um, weighted blankets. And that's not something I promote because it's not directly generalizable. But um, certainly what they're weighted with is also one of the safety considerations. And so there's all different kinds of weighted materials out there. And when we were first um, instituting these, there wasn't the variety of them that there is out there today. And so um, uh, at this point in time, the types of weighted blankets that I tend to feel have the most safe weighted materials Um, are those that are filled with poly pellets because they're um, hypoallergenic, they can be washed easily, um, and if for some reason they are ingested, they will tend to move through. They're also not a food-based material. They're not metal, which can rust if it gets wet. And again, they can be laundered fairly easily. So all those things that I mentioned are things that are come up as safety concerns. Can you wash them in between uses? Infection control kinds of considerations. So of all of the different sensory approaches that I've integrated into my practice and all the places I've traveled and organizations I've worked with, the the interventions that tend to um, rise to the level of organizations needing to create policies and procedures around um, have been the use of sensory rooms, um, clinical aromatherapy, 
um, weighted modalities, pet therapy, and in some places the use of the use of massage chairs. And keep in mind that they have cords and whatnot to them. So um, those tend to be the ones that are of most concern of risk and safety concerns in in many different types of settings, even residential settings and so forth. So. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're also um, extremely um, effective interventions when used in a skilled manner. And so, you know, it's well worth, well worth the effort. And there's lots of different samples of these kinds of policies out there um, right. today as well. If, if you're working in an organization and you're hearing this, you're going, hmm. <laughs> I think Where do I get those to, uh, yeah. guidelines? Yeah. So the, the poly pellets, are they heavy enough? Um, yes. Uh, again, weighted blankets can be made at at many different weights, any weighted modality. Um, but and like how much weight are you usually using? I mean, I know our adult blankets that we use in our clinic here um, are probably anywhere from 5 to 15 pounds. Um, the heaviest weighted blanket that I've used in my practice has been up to 30 pounds. 30 pounds? Um, again, with adult populations and older adolescents and you know everything from the size of the blanket to the weight of the blanket um, are things you need to take into consideration and um, I wouldn't recommend using really heavy blankets if um, there wasn't an OT involved with doing some form of an assessment and Mm -hmm. making sure that anybody um, monitoring the use or using the this modality um, that they're trained and understand how to use it. And it should never, ever be used as a restraint. And believe it or not, um, I've done a lot of training in this area, and it never ceases to amaze me that, you know, anything you're doing to somebody, and if they can't easily get out of it, it's right. considered, could be considered a restraint. And so um, it should never be used in that manner. So it should be easily removable, um, the size should be appropriate to the size of the individual, and you know those are some different rules of thumb. I'm I'm always cautious about you know giving too many recommendations without working with individuals and whoever is going to be helping to supervise the process um, for liability reasons. But certainly, my doctoral project and in my book, I out and in my different studies I've conducted, and some of this is also available on my website. There's lots of information about all of this and um, can be certainly um, used to help develop guidelines. But certainly it's not going to be the same guidelines that are developed for the weighted vest. So, for example, um, some people promote, you know, the the time frames that are promoted for weighted vests out of right. concern that someone will habituate to the amount of weight. And that right. is not something that I would be so concerned about with the use of weighted blank, it's just given the amount of experience I have with using that modality. doesn't mean that no one will ever habituate. It just, it's just much less of an issue. And again, you can also use, tend to use a little bit more weight because you're not going to be walking around with a weighted blanket, whereas with a weighted vest, you're walking around with that, or you could be mobile. And so they use the guidelines for the carrying of heavy loads when they design those particular guidelines. Whereas if you're more stationary and you're sitting down or lying down, that's, that's less of a, of a variable. And so again, you know, um, there's a lot of these different interventions don't have a lot of research out there to help to develop guidelines. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's part of what you have to take into consideration when you're, when you're, doing pioneering kinds of work. 
Right. I mean, um, what other kinds of vestibular activities have you been able to to uh, utilize? Um, anything from something, again, I have to, in my work, it's different if it's something I'm doing as an OT versus if I'm training um, interdisciplinary staff. And right. so um, things like rocking chairs and swings, you'd be surprised how many settings I work with that don't even have simple things like a rocking chair, which is for a lot of people can be very soothing. Um, you know, so things like that, dance movement, even the use of, you know, we fit and things like that. There's lots of different ways to get that vestibular stim in a way that um, is client-centered and that they have choice um, and just having, a you know, a variety of options in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have other kinds of heavy work um activities that you found helpful? Um, Sure. Anything from yoga poses that are, you know, um, offer more intensity of vestibular and proprioceptive stimulation to um, all different kinds of exercise or sports participation. Um, Even something as simple as I mentioned before as beanbag tapping. And while, you know, the the body part receiving the tapping is getting more deep touch pressure. The arm that's actually doing the tapping huh. is getting quite a workout. And right. uh, so, you know, the use of um, weighted therapy balls, medicine balls, um, things like that. So there's just um, help, having people help you to set, set up the room for groups, um, gardening activities. There's just all kinds of things just depending on where you work and what you um, may have available. The other um, the other sensory system that I think is a powerhouse that wasn't necessarily mentioned as much by heirs, but particularly when working with people with trauma histories is the olfactory system, so your sense of smell, um, given that that has a direct shot to your nervous system and that stimulation doesn't have to filter up through um, you know, the body and through the brain stem to get to that limbic system, the emotion center of the brain. So that's another powerhouse when you're working with people with trauma histories. And I'll share a little quick story with you. Um, I was talking to this person who I said had a first psychotic break and explaining about some of the work that I was doing and how this person really inspired me to go in this direction. And one of the things that he shared with me was that there was, he's somebody who has schizophrenia. And he said that there was a day when the voices were talking so fast and so loud that he couldn't even make out what they were saying. And I said, really, what did you do? And he said, well, I went to the gym and I worked out the hardest workout I've ever done for about four hours. And I said, really, what happened? And he said, well, it slowed down. I didn't have to take extra medication and I didn't have to go to the hospital. So that's just, uh, you know, a great example of the power of you know, those heavy work kinds of activities on the nervous system. And, you know, that's an example of someone with schizophrenia. So, again, there's a lot of different applications. Right. I just wanted to to comment on the yoga piece. I think that's something that's really helpful. Um, But what I think a lot of people don't realize is that especially those inverted head positions, like downward dog, things like that, where the head is is inverted and they're doing um, upper extremity weight-bearing, those are particularly powerful uh, mm-hmm. kinds of activities. You get that Definitely. really strong um, vestibular input, and that inverted head position is really um, triggers that carotid uh, sinus reflex. That's very mm-hmm. calming. 
mm-hmm. so that's a, a good good strategy. Um, now, with these activities, uh, what kinds of differences have you seen? We've talked a little bit about them in terms of how you have to implement them in different kinds of settings. Um, have you seen differences amongst that? Well, largely that, you know, needing to adapt for different age ranges, different levels of care, um, different cultural considerations, um, and as you mentioned before, the safety considerations. So thinking about if you're working in a forensic setting that's locked and highly secure um, is much more limiting in terms of the kinds of equipment and furnishings one can have versus if you're working in an, uh, more of a community-based t- sort of a setting. So there's a lot of different um, things you have to take in con- into consideration. And when it comes to different diagnoses, wanting to be um, really aware of what it is the person's experiencing and being mindful of that. So if I'm working with someone who's manic, for example, um, it doesn't mean that I won't give them choices, but I'm not going to give them necessarily the wide range of choices that I might give to someone who's depressed because it's going to be too much for them to organize around. Um, or I might be a little more directive with somebody who has um, more of a manic sort of presentation than somebody who might be really disorganized or paranoid or um, having those kinds of you know hallucinations and so forth. I might be more casual in my approach. Um, definitely wanting to approach from the front when you're working with someone with PTSD or not to suggest to have their eyes closed unless they are really comfortable with that or being careful that I don't touch them without them inviting me um, to do such a thing. And so, um, you know, just lots of different things to take into consideration, getting to know your client population and um, and just sort of taking it from there. Right. Uh, I think... Um the other thing that people are always interested in is this idea of what you mentioned, the sensory rooms, um, carts, kits, kind of all of those different kinds of things. Um, how have you implemented those kinds of um, things? Have you, have you had the opportunity to set up some sensory rooms? And, you know, what kinds of stuff do you use? Uh, have you found Snoozalin to be helpful or, you know, any of those materials? Or kind of what do you usually try to, to do? Um, sure. Actually, developing a sensory was one of the very first things that we did on um, one of the inpatient units. And um, basically, what I've come to find out is there's lots of different kinds of sensory rooms. <laughs> and yeah. when you just when you say sensory room, people can people go into different directions as to what they think that it is and what it means. When I'm devel- helping to develop a room that's for for modulation related purposes, things like snoozling and also even just helping to develop spaces that are just more home-like in general when you're working in institutions or mental health programs can be really quite powerful. And many programs, you know, maybe nonprofit, uh, may not have a lot of funds to be able to purchase really super expensive equipment. Uh Um, So I just try to help organizations think about getting a variety of different kinds of seating options. So, beanbag chairs, rocking chairs, you know, recliners, different things like that, maybe therapy balls that are used for chairs, um, a variety of different tools which can even be organized into different bins for each of the sensory systems, mm-hmm. um, music, um, projectors, 
things like even plants, if they're allowed in your setting, a fish tank, or if not a fish tank, if that's not considered safe, maybe a bubble tube, one of the bubble lamps, um, uh, different weighted modalities, art supplies, self-help books, reading materials, um, are all things that can be um, integrated into you know, developing a sensory room or even carts, which can be, you know, made mobile. And sensory kits are something that I often try to help people to create a kit that is based on the theme of whatever it is they want to use it for and to help them to brainstorm things and even make things to put in them. So that's definitely something that's, you know, a big part of the whole sensory modulation program. But you also have to think about, again, where you are, your setting, the culture, um, cognitive ability levels. So what you're going to have on a cart for working in a setting with people with dementia is going to be very different than what you might have working in a residential program with young children or something like that. Right. And I think um, one of the other things I always think about with this, which, again, you've kind of alluded to, is what are we doing as therapists, OTs particularly, um, for therapeutic treatment um, for a client, if we're doing treatment with the client versus what kinds of sensory uh, strategies are you setting up for others, like nursing staff right, exactly. uh, or, or the social workers or the, the other mental health professionals to use with that person, uh, or for that, then thirdly, what are you using for that person to use themselves to right. self-regulate on a day-to-day basis. And those, those, exactly. those are three very different agendas mm-hmm. in terms of coming up with activity ideas and goals for, for treatment and what you're going to use. I mean, I personally don't think that most of the sensory rooms are, as they're, they're set up, um, like you said, the home-like environment kind of a situation, isn't necessarily the best environment for therapeutic treatment um, on a therapist level per se may not may not always be what we want but it might be really really great for um, a space for other people to work with them or um, for the person to go on a day-to-day basis Mm -hmm. or we may choose other kinds of activities to use because they pack a bigger punch maybe they'll make more permanent changes than um just a sort of a sensory diet kind of approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's where understanding the different kinds of sensory rooms comes into play, and it's Mm -hmm. literally to the degree that I um, developed a little visual model that I use in a lot of my trainings, and sensory modulation rooms are more those spaces that you are wanting to teach others how to use, have them participate in developing the spaces, have it be an exploratory space where someone can go in and try things and use things as needed. And you want to just make sure that everybody understands and is really clear on how to use the space and clean the things that are contained within the space, etc. Whereas a sensory, more of a sensory integration type of a space is something that's going to be developed Um, by people with more advanced clinical training and it's used for more assessment and therapeutic intervention on on a different scale. And it's targeting the entirety of sensory processing and not just, again, more for modulation-related purposes. And that's part of, you know, how, again, I've kind of navigated the language because, um, you know, it's, it's a big difference and it needs to be demonstrated what's within 
the scope of practice of a rehab professional versus what is not. Right. That's a good point. Um, our time is getting close here, but there's a couple other things I wanted to uh, just cover. Um, one thing I wanted to just talk a little bit about briefly is um, the issue of self-injurious behavior, um, especially that of um, like cutting or other kinds of self-harm. Um, it's just so rampant in our teenagers and young adults in particular um, today. Um, have you found um, specific sensory strategies that seem to help address that particularly? Anything, um, words of wisdom? <laughs> Well, one thing that um, I'd like to just say is that I did a, a um, lit review on self-injurious behavior as part of my doctoral program, and there's over 33 different terms for self-injurious behaviors, and there's many different functions for why people might engage in different kinds of self-injurious behaviors. And so number one is, you know, one size never fits all. And so really helping to assess what is the function of the behavior. And people with trauma histories often engage in self-injurious behaviors. And so, again, um, understanding that there's different types and that there's different reasons for why people engage. And so with that being said, um, if it is that someone is more sensory seeking or seeking stimulation, um, then looking at what it is they tend to gravitate towards and trying to find less harmful ways to attain that kind of stimulation. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, if they're picking their skin, then maybe using ice or vibration or, again, the beanbag tapping, giving them some more intense um, tactile input if that is, in fact, maybe some of what they might be seeking. Um, grounding techniques can be extremely helpful to decrease the need or the feeling of the urge to engage in self-injurious behavior, to feel more safe, to feel more calm. Distraction, um, using different interventions for distraction purposes or to self-soothe or to find ways to feel like you're able to um, get a sense of containment. So even something like sitting in a big, huge beanbag chair with um, a weighted blanket over the top of you, for some people that might feel really containing and really soothing, whereas someone like me, who I personally don't care for the use of a weighted blanket, that wouldn't work for me. So there's that individual factor. There's looking at what is the function of the behavior, and sometimes it's going to be more intense kinds of stimuli that might be needed or useful, and sometimes it might be more calming and soothing kinds of interventions. Great. Yeah, I think that that's really helpful. Um, the uh, next thing I wanted to ask about was um, what kinds of uh, sensory-based programming um, do you recommend for professionals um, in terms of, you know, uh, trainings, um, information that they should have uh, to help them um, learn more about um, people with mental health and trauma-based needs and goals. Um, well, certainly, um, I offer lots of courses through my website, otinnovations.com, Spiral Foundation. You all offer a variety of fantastic workshops and trainings. Um, there's lots of different um, people whose work that I um, really um, think is just fantastic. So Karen Moore, for example, and the Sensory Connection, her work is often hurt. She and 
my work is very compatible and it's often used together. Um, and there's so few resources for applications in mental health that many people tend to use um, both of our different um, works. Um, certainly, um, there is the work of Sharon Heller, and um, she has two books that are out there now on the yeah, subject, yeah. one of them being Too Loud, Too Bright, Too Fast, Too Tight. Lindsay Beal just recently published on sensory processing challenges and the mental health connection. Um, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk um, has lots of different um, trainings and resources through the, um, the trauma center. Um, that's just to name a few. <laughs> yeah, excellent. I think that gives people some ideas of places to go for additional information. Um, and I guess then we've just got a couple more minutes left. And the last question that I always ask is, do you have um, uh, specific resources or references that you'd like to recommend to people where they can get more information on uh, trauma and related treatments? Um, sure. Um, in addition to my website and your websites, and again, my um, publications are all listed on there. I have a lot that's I've come out with in the last 10 years on trauma attachment and sensory approaches. But in addition to all of that, certainly SAMHSA's trauma resources um, are fantastic. The National Center for Trauma-Informed Care is another website. The National Child Traumatic Stress Network, National Center for PTSD. The Massachusetts um, Restraint Reduction Resources from the Department of Mental Health, if you just Google that, it'll take you to a page with a whole um, page worth of resources. Certainly, um, Dan Hughes' website, um, Spiral Foundation, um, the SPD Foundation um, are all um, you know resources. There's many, and um, I could go on and on and on. Um, but <laughs> there's a lot. Of, some, there's actually a some, lot out there. <laughs> there is. There's quite a bit out there. Well, I think um, one of the things that you point out that I don't think many of our uh, previous speakers this year um, have really talked very much about are the wealth of information that is available through the state and federal government agencies. Yes, so, definitely. Yeah. So looking at places. Um, Federal agencies like SAMHSA uh, or the state um, uh, agencies like you mentioned, the restraint reduction um, initiatives, um, you know, Googling those kinds of, of programs um, can be really, really helpful mm -hmm. uh, in, in finding resources. Yes, even the American OT Association, can't forget them. Um, yeah. You know, we've developed ourselves together um, a fact sheet on sensory processing and using it with adults. I've authored fact sheets on PTSD and the OT role, restraint reduction, um, then, of course, many different articles uh, and resources through OT practice and the American right. Journal of Occupational Therapy. Great. So at this point... Um, our time is almost up, so if anyone um, has questions, um, please feel free to um, uh, go ahead and type in uh, any questions that you might have uh, on your computer, and I'll convey those to Tina. Uh, we have two listeners uh, who are on the phone only. And I am going to briefly unmute you, and you know who you are. 
if you can please mute your phones uh, if you don't have a question so we don't get your background noise. Otherwise, I'll have to, to mute you back up again, okay? But I'll take questions now for Tina. If you're on the phone and you have a question, you can just go ahead and speak up. If you're on the computer, you can just go ahead and type in your question. Nobody has questions. Oh, there we go. Um, okay, so uh, one of our listeners asks, uh, can you say a little bit about how what you do differs from what a purely mental health professional would do. As an occupational therapist, we provide more comprehensive assessment, um, which then helps to guide the way that we look at treatment planning and intervention. And we look not only at sensory modulation, but also the totality of sensory processing. And there's not a lot of rehabilitation professionals, meaning OT, PT, speech, language pathologists, that work specifically in mental health practice. And so I always say, as part of my trainings, if we aren't providing that comprehensive level of assessment, how are we going to be able to know um, you know, the degree of involvement in sensory processing that um, anybody might be experiencing. And I have several clients even here, I'm currently working children's residential and school-based practice as well as outpatient. And um, there's a child who had significant sensory processing difficulties across all areas, and particularly problems with praxis. And he had been labeled as a kid with largely mental health and behavioral problems. Um, until I landed this job here and was able to do real comprehensive assessment and to help to demonstrate that and that that was such a huge contributor to his presentation. And even his mother um, to this day is thankful that we were able to notice this and to pick, pick up on it and that he's been able to receive treatment not only to help provide um coping strategies, but to help to really target those developmental needs on, you know, again, more of the larger scale of sensory integration or sensory processing that have really helped to make a significant change in this family's lives. Um, another uh, of our listeners uh, asks, um, do you have any uh, creative ideas for sensory groups in an acute inpatient mental health? Uh, setting, and they use sensory carts now. Uh, any other creative ideas for things to put on the cart? <laughs> so sort of two parts there. Um, sure. In groups, it can be anything from um, bringing in bins of things for the different sensory systems and just being able to explore and self-rate as you explore to um, bringing in um, sensory tools um, to support engagement in mindfulness practice, using sensory cues to even um, a group on deep pressure touch types of stimulation where you might bring in a weighted blanket, you might bring in bean bags for bean bag tapping, um, uh, weighted therapy balls, for example, and have people trial these different techniques and just, you know, get a sense of what might be helpful to them. 
um, the sensory connection program by Karen Moore and Mildred Ross also, they have sensory motor group protocols that you can follow as well. In terms of the carts, um, one of the most creative um, ideas that I've heard is actually by a group of um, an OT and some nursing staff out in New Zealand. They created a sleep cart, and this was a cart that was specific to help their clients to be able to prepare for sleep, um, you know, starting early, much earlier on in the evening, and they had a really great time just brainstorming together. And, you know, that was one of the lessons I learned the hard way. Um, I could easily go in with my level of experience and design the most tricked out sensory room or carts or what have you. But if you don't do it with the people that are going to be using these interventions, um, oftentimes you're not going to get the buy-in that you need and they oftentimes will not be used. And so you really want to... um, get those creative juices flowing with the people that are going to be using these interventions if you're not just doing this, you know, yourself. And uh, to me, that was an extremely important lesson to learn and something that I try to do the best of my ability everywhere that I work. Excellent. Um, And can you um, tell people the name of your website again? Sure. It's um, ot-innovations.com is the link, and it's just OT Innovations for Psychosocial Practice. Okay. And then one last question, and then we'll let you go. Um, uh, The listeners ask, can you explain a little bit more, again, um, how clients have better access to interventions through sensory modulation rather than sensory integration? Um, I think what she's asking is um, some of the difference here that, we were talking about early on? Um, Better access. Well, again, if it's focused more on modulation and we're able to provide training and help people to understand what it is we mean and how these interventions are used for helping the person to self-regulate. It can help with the buy-in. Yeah, it can help with the buy-in and help people to feel comfortable with providing access. Um, So again, a a nurse isn't going to go into a sensory space or use a sensory cart if they don't feel comfortable with understanding how to use these things or even more importantly, how not to use some of these interventions. Right. Um, And, you know, when it comes to strategies that are for more of the totality for sensory integration and sensory processing, that's a whole different conversation that has to really be done with people who are skilled and have more advanced training in being able to offer those kinds of interventions. I hope that answered the question. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it gets back to the point that we were just discussing, that what kind of intervention are you providing? The right. therapist doing direct treatment with the client may be sensory integration-based um, intervention, whereas we may teach the client themselves how to do some sensory modulation strategies, or we may teach the um, other mental health professionals um, or hospital staff or um, support staff um, how to do sensory modulation-based strategies to help with that client's self-regulation skills only. Uh, That means they may not be addressing things like discrimination problems, postural control, um, praxis skills. That would really be outside of the scope of the mental health professional, whereas it may be within the scope of the OT, whether she's doing mental health work 
or not, uh, or working in a particular setting or not. Right, or if Would it's if it's a combination of the two. I think it's um, where it gets tricky is that for um, mental health professionals and OTs working in mental health, when we're engaging in the modulation strategies, that is as much providing direct treatment from that point of view as would be doing other things. It's just that there's a difference between engaging in strategies focused more on modulation and therapeutic intervention on that scale versus when you're shifting gears and you're, again, adding more of the totality of sensory integration and or processing, which is, again, more within the realm of the rehab professional. Right. And I think that has more to do with the expectations of the setting. Right. <laughs> and just the nature of the service being provided. Right. And that gets back to reimbursement services, that kind of thing as well? Um, reimbursement and just scope of practice. Um, a lot of the mental health settings that I've worked in, reimbursement is less of an issue. Um, OT, for example, where I'm at right now is written into the contract as a mandatory staff and it's, you know, the overall program is funded by the state. And so, you know, it becomes more of, um, of a, what is the goal of the therapeutic intervention and within what scope of practice does that need to be provided. And also just to, to probably a nice place to land on in terms of ending the conversation is, you know, this some of this is newer territory. It's right. newer territory for mental health clinicians to be adding more sensory approaches to their toolbox and it's newer territory even for occupational therapists to be adding more of the trauma-based work into their toolbox. And so, you know, it's it's a pine, it's a time of change and we're all just trying to really navigate and look at things like scope of practice while at the same time providing our clients with the best possible care that we can provide. Fantastic way to end. And we're going to let you go now because we've kept you after and I'm sure people are ready to head out. So our time's up now, and we'd like to thank you all for joining us. Um, watch our website and mailing list for more details. Uh, thank you, Dr. Champagne, very much uh, for being with us this evening. Um, and thank you to our participants for joining us for our live talk, uh, Sensory Integration and Mental Health Series. Uh, watch our website, www.thespiralfoundation.org, for our next live talk presentation and to obtain copies of past programs. And have a good evening. Thanks a lot. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.